If you are just joining us or just joining us for the first time in a while, welcome. And we just wrapped up a series to launch us in to the new year from the life of Moses. And if you missed that, you can catch up online or on our podcast. And in a couple weeks, we're going to dive back into our, our study through the book of Luke, our deep dive verse by verse through the book of Luke. But today we're starting a short little two-week series. And to get us to what we're talking about today, we need to do a little bit of math. Is that cool with everybody? A little bit of math. Okay, it'll be remedial. So that'll help you out and me too. Um, but here we go. Let's try this. Uh, you just call it out, whoever gets it first. Uh, five times eight. Oh, easy. Six times nine. Well, it took a little longer there. I'm, I said remedial. I didn't think that remedial. I mean, okay, here we go. Just kidding. 11 times 12. Getting harder. There I heard it, 132. Okay, how about... 15 times 18, getting harder. 270 from over here. All right, I got another one, a big one for you. How about 22 times 36? Very good. Did you, you cheated, you pulled out your smartphone, didn't you? So, multiplication tables, you know. I Don't feel bad if you had some trouble with those. I had to write a little cheat sheet, too. You know, I would have to, like, stop and calculate it all in my brain, and it would have taken a long time. But here's the thing about multiplication, that once you get past one, right, um, whatever you multiply becomes a much bigger number, doesn't it? So you start with five, and you multiply it uh, times eight, it becomes a much bigger number. You start with 11, you multiply it, it becomes a much bigger number, basic Mathematics, correct? Now, I've got one that I think everybody can do here. So let's try this. And I want everybody to participate on this one, okay? So here we go. How about um, 84 times zero? Really? Okay. How about uh, 182 times zero? Wow, you guys are fast this morning. How about uh, 1,097? That's a hard multiplier. Times zero. Uh, yeah. Okay. How about 139,433 times zero? I'm not going to write that out. Um, how about 1,436 times zero? Well, you guys are just so fast. Those are big numbers. And yet you did them immediately. Yeah. And, and here's the point. Anything multiplied times zero amounts to what? Zero. Multiplies towards to nothing, isn't it? It amounts to nothing. Zero, zip, nada, zilch, right? And that's easy math, isn't it? And so here's what we're going to talk about today. Today we are going to talk about the one thing that has the potential to make everything you do for Jesus add up to a big, fat, giant zero. Add up to nothing. But if you get this thing right, it can be the multiplying factor for everything else in your life. 
And to discover that one thing, we're going to look at a couple short paragraphs that a great hero of the faith wrote in a letter 2,000 years ago. And his name is the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul didn't start out as a great hero of the faith. He started out as uh, we see him when he's first introduced as Saul of Tarsus. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name. And he hated Christians, in fact. He was known, his distinguishing mark was he was the Christian hunter. He hated them. He wanted to squash the Christian faith, which was they considered a little knockoff sect of Judaism. It wasn't even called Christians yet. It was just called the way. But he got permission to go all the way from Jerusalem up to Damascus and haul the followers of Jesus up there back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. He presided over the stoning death of the first martyr named Stephen. And so in his process to try to squash out this new Christian faith, he actually became one. And his conversion is a really cool story we won't go over today. But a cool fact about that is that the, the conversion of the Apostle Paul is actually incredible evidence for the resurrection of Jesus because he claims to have encountered the risen Jesus. And scholars today, they cannot come up with any plausible explanation for why Paul would leave leadership in, in Judaism and the Pharisee sect and, and convert and become a follower of Jesus after he tried to stamp it out. And so it's an amazing evidence historically for the resurrection because he said, I encountered the risen Jesus. Now, Paul went on to plant churches or a little Greek word, ecclesia, literally means little ga a gathering or an assembly all over the Roman Empire. Most of them started out meeting in, in homes and they'd meet wherever they could. And after planting these churches, just 20 years after Jesus resurrection. He wrote letters back to these churches to encourage them and sometimes to bring correction. And even from the very beginning, these letters were considered inspired by God or considered scripture. And we know that because Peter, uh, one of Jesus' other, one of Jesus' closest followers, writes about Paul's letters and calls them scripture. And Peter says, uh, they're actually, some of them are pretty hard to understand. They're a bit complicated. And some people twist them. And so if you've read Romans, you understand, right? Some of them are pretty challenging, pretty complicated. But these letters were cherished and protected, and they would eventually make up nearly a half of the New Testament. And in these letters, we find two of the greatest things that Paul contributed to the Christian faith. The first one is when he took statements that Jesus made in a Jewish context and then clearly explained to the rest of the Gentile world how to have right relationship with God or how to be saved. We call it, he calls it a big church word, justification by faith. And you see some of the classic ideas around this in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God or the, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Ephesians, he, he writes that it's a free gift so that no one may boast. It's all God's grace, unmerited favor. He says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this, this big idea of salvation um, and, and really clearly explaining it is one of the big things that Paul um, gave to the Christian church. And the second thing is that he would take the teachings of Jesus 
and he would really put flesh and bones on them and really make them practical for Gentile Christians. I'm guessing most in this room are Gentile Christians. You're not Jewish. You don't come from a Jewish background, right? And so he would explain to us how these, how these uh, teachings of Jesus apply to our lives. In fact, the primary teaching of Jesus that Paul leveraged over and over was something that Jesus said just before his death and resurrection. So before we get to what Paul wrote, um, we're gonna take just a few minutes, and in John 13, we're gonna take a look at some of Jesus' words on which Paul based so much of what he wrote. And so the scene is at, what's, uh, the scene is at the Last Supper, and you've heard of that before. And first, there's, Jesus is close to being arrested. He's going to be arrested later that night. And he gathers his 12 closest disciples together. And first, in this dramatic word picture, this dramatic um, expression of servant leadership, he gathers them and then he washes their feet. And then he tells them, he's been hinting at it all along. He's been telling them, but they haven't got it. He says, hey, before you know it, pretty soon I'm going to go away. And where I'm going, you can't go. And as they're spinning out on all that, trying to figure out what he means, then as they're wrestling with that, he introduces a new critical commandment to them. And here's how it goes in John 13, 34. It says this, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, you're probably like the disciples. You're like, that's not really new. I've heard that a lot. I've heard that before, right? That's not really new. And they're thinking, that's not really new. And Jesus would say, wait, wait, I'm not finished yet. He goes on, a new command I give you, love one another. Then he ups the bar. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Not the way you're used to loving others in the sort of a, you know, self-centered, you love those who, who just love you back and you love those who can give you something in return. You love like I have loved you. And maybe as he's looking around at these guys, you know, he's looking at Matthew and, and, and Matthew's kind of thinking about how Jesus loved him, right? He was a despised tax collector. But Jesus invites him into relationship and says, follow me, something he would have never had the opportunity to do. And Jesus doesn't look at him just at, at the place where he is now. Jesus sees who he can become as a leader in his movement. He says, follow me, right? Or Nathaniel. Nathaniel, one of the disciples, the first thing that comes out of Nathaniel's mouth when he sees Jesus, he insults him and his family and his hometown and his whole region where he's come. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? And normally I pick on people from Delta at that point, you know, in the room. And if I talk about that scripture, and <clears throat> we won't do that here today. Peter, maybe he's thinking about Peter, right? And he, he's thinking, Peter, you don't know this yet. I mean, you've done some crazy stuff over the last three years, and I loved you in spite of that, but you're going to actually deny me. You're going to deny that you ever knew me here in just a little while, and yet I'm going to forgive you and commission you to be a key leader in my movement. In fact, Jesus knows and says just a little bit later that they are all about ready to abandon him, and he still washes their feet. He still goes to the cross. He still entrusts his mission to them. And they don't get this right here at this moment, but later on, they will remember this conversation and, and this will dawn on them as, as he goes to the cross for them and they'll say, oh, that's the kind of love he was talking about. That's the kind of love. And then Jesus said this next statement, and this is the part that drove so much of what the apostle Paul 
would teach. In verse 35, here's what he says. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By this, everyone will know. This is the distinguishing mark of a disciple or a follower, literally a follower of me. This is the mark. When people look at you, this, is, this should be the thing they see that goes, oh, they must be a follower of Jesus. This is the distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus. This is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus says, this is the thing that will mark you as my follower. This is the thing. This is what, it's not bumper stickers, you know. You know, you have your bumper sticker if you want, you know. Um, it's not T-shirts, Christian T-shirts. It's not the fact that you're, you just have the, your, your subs in your car just thumping out K-Love, you know. Doom, doom, you know. You're rolling, you know. Thugs for Jesus, yo. So not all that. He said, no, it's going to be love, right? The fact that you love one another. And here's the thing. In all religious systems, the current, the natural pull, the gravitational force naturally flows away from treating people well towards some other kind of routine or ritual. Have you noticed that? In every different um, religious system, basically it's about if I can just please God by checking off these boxes or lining up my life or, or you know, being really hard on myself in an area or being really studious or you know, being uh, you know, a monk in a monastery somewhere, or that kind of you know, aesthetic sort of lifestyle, whipping myself, I don't know, all kinds of different things in religious systems around the world. If I can just do that, then I then I can feel pretty okay about the fact that I treat others around me pretty lousy. Because I'm okay with God. Me and God are okay, you know. And I can be over here, and I can treat you lousy, and I can not forgive, and, and I can harbor grudges, and, you know, I can cheat a little, and I can do all these things over here as long as I come back here. And every, every different religious system has a different way of making that right, you know, and feeling like they're okay again. Maybe if you're from a Catholic background, um, you know, that's confession. You know, as long as I'm going to Mass and confessing, I'm feeling right. You know, if you're from a Protestant uh, tradition, it's more of, I can just say a magic prayer. You know, okay, I know I kind of blew it. I can just say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus forgives me. And, it, and it's okay now. And I'm okay with God. And, and I can feel okay about the fact that I'm not right with my fellow human. In fact, the, the Pharisees were classics for this, weren't they? at rule-keeping, at checking off all the boxes. This is what Jesus over and over confronts them on. You're doing good at keeping the rules, but you don't love people. You treat people lousy. You oppress people in your life. In fact, Jesus is, he knows this is such a big deal. At one point as he's teaching, he's teaching Jewish people who for them, the highest and holiest thing that they can do the highest and holiest thing they can do is offer, come and offer sin offerings at the temple. And Jesus says, if you're at the altar, the very altar itself, the holiest moment in our faith, and you're getting ready to offer the sacrifice on the altar, and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave the altar, leave your sacrifice, and everybody would gasp, oh, that's the most dramatic, you know, that's the biggest moment. Go make it right with your brother, and then come back, and finish your business with God. Why? Because the way you express your love for God and your devotion to God, and this is what Jesus says, love God, love others, right? The way you express your love for God isn't through routine and ritual. 
and all these things. It is through your love for one another. And Jesus knows that if, if I don't make this super clear to these guys, they're going to come up with all these systems. And as we see, the church has done this over the years, hasn't it? To make us feel okay with the fact that, that we're not loving each other. And yet we can feel like we're okay with God because we're checking off boxes. And Jesus knows if these guys don't get it, my movement will just become one of those kinds of systems. And so he, he, he wants them to get this. He wants to make sure that this sinks in. Now, I think the next verse is really funny. Because as Jesus is, is doing this, he's like, buy this. This is the thing that will tell others that you are my disciple. Buy this, buy this. This is the one thing. And then to show you that, you know, this wasn't, because they were so familiar with this kind of idea. I mean, you know, they'd heard Jesus teaching about love God, love others. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've heard that one before, right? And the very next verse is Jesus lays this intense statement down. Peter, I like this, 36. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? He's like, oh, yeah, love, love, whatever. Where are you going? I'm still, I, he hadn't even been paying attention. Jesus laid down the one, by this, they're going to know you're my follower. And Peter hadn't even been paying attention. He's just spinning off and thinking about all this other stuff. Jesus went. And isn't that a lot like us sometimes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love one another. I know. I've heard that. Now, let's get on to some meat, you know. Let's get on to some of the, the deeper stuff, you know. The whole love one another thing. Yeah, we've, we've heard it so many times. Now, let's move on. Let's talk about end times. That's really intriguing, right? That's interesting. Familiarity breeds contempt. And if we're not careful, the thing we are so familiar with that is so critical and so important slips off our radar. And Paul would go, wait, wait, time out, hold on. You can't miss this. See, Paul recognized the central place of importance that this teaching had in our faith. And he reemphasizes it over and over and over again in his letters. Sometimes he'll just say, love one another. But oftentimes he takes it and he puts flesh and bones on it and says, this is what it means to love each other. And one of those letters where he writes about love is to a church in a city called Corinth. And in it are some of, in this letter are some of the most famous words about love that have ever been written. Now, I've been to Corinth. Anybody else been to Corinth? Oh, I feel pretty special, huh? I was only 13, though, and the, my highlight, uh, I got to, it was cool, Athens, we got to stand on the spot where Paul preached his Acts 17, um, Mars Hill sermon, amazing. And then uh, we got to go to Corinth and run. I had a friend, missionary friend, and we ran on the ancient Olympic track in Corinth. That was pretty cool. But what was even cooler is a 13-year-old kid, they had all these uh, runes of the ancient uh, restrooms lined up up here. And so we got to go sit on the ancient Olympic toilets. And that was the highlight for me as a 13-year-old boy. Surprise, surprise. I really need to go back. I think I would appreciate it in a whole different way now than when I was 13. So, so Paul writes to this church in Corinth, and he's going to bring a word of correction to, to them. And he's going to write some of the most famous words about love that have ever been written in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, as soon as I said that, you knew where we're going, didn't you? If you're here, I mean, even if you're just walking through the doors of the church kind of for the first time checking this out, you're going to recognize these words because you've been to a wedding before, haven't you? And you've heard these words, even though you may not know the address of 
where it's located. And here's, here's, the, here's the hard part about preaching this. I had to stop and think, have I ever actually preached these verses? I've preached some of them and I've talked, but I don't think we've ever actually put them up on the screen here and talked about these. They're read at every wedding. They're so familiar that if you're not careful, you're just gonna tune out. Kind of like Peter here, you know, love one another. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now where are you going, Jesus, you know? Let's get back to this other conversation. Familiarity bleeds or breeds contempt. But don't tune out on this because what Paul is gonna remind us of is that if you don't get this right, you run the risk of this. Your faith amounting to nothing. And so here we go. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And so he's talking to people, and basically to frame it real quick, I'm not going to go into a lot of the context, but he's talking about giftedness in the church and spiritual gifts and people that think they're really spiritual because, you know, they operate in these different areas and, uh, you know, they have these dramatic giftings. And yet he's, all the other, almost all the other letters Paul writes, he starts out by, by just thanking God for their faith and their love for one another. You see this in a lot of the other epistles, not in Corinthians. He starts out by saying, there are dissensions and factions among you. It ain't good. You got to change something. And so he gets to this part where everybody's going, I'm so spiritual. I'm so spiritual. And Paul starts out. He says, let me show you a more excellent way. And he says this, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And to put this in context for you, you all know somebody that you could call a jerk for Jesus, right? That, that, you know, they are so interested in telling everyone about them, about Jesus, and the way they do it is so off-putting that you're like, you're not going to convince anybody to love Jesus. You're just going to make them think how annoying you are and how rude you are, and you're going to drive them away, right? If you don't believe me, just go. Scroll down Facebook for a while, huh? But this is that, this is that thing of, of being so loud and so in people's face about beliefs and things that the way we approach it just drives people away. I thought I would illustrate this for you. Um, since we have a clanging, uh, an opportunity to have a clanging symbol right here, I'm gonna tell you how much Jesus loves you and I wanna see if you hear it, okay? So here we go. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Now you're just thinking, would he just stop that, right? That is so annoying. And that's the point Paul's making here. That's the point that when, if you think you're spiritual and yet you present yourself and approach people in such a way that it just pushes them away, if there's not a genuine love in your heart for people, it's, it's like that. It's just annoying. It just pushes people away from Jesus. And one thing you have to notice about Jesus is even those people who are the most different from Jesus in the scripture just seem comfortable around him, welcomed and loved by him. Jesus was for jerks. Like I said, you've all met a jerk for Jesus. Jesus was, was for jerks. And, and the thing, I mean, some of the statements Jesus made were just truly revolutionary. A lot of religions would say, love your brother, help your brother. In fact, the Jewish religion, hate your enemy. 
Kill him if you can, right? And when Jesus introduced the statement, love your enemy, that was revolutionary in the time. Have you noticed the way that Jesus approached people to the woman at the well? He approached her, and somehow in the midst of this, even though he was confronting her sinful behavior, she realized that he loved her, and she ended up becoming an evangelist to her whole city, right? Or another instance of a woman caught in adultery where he said, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. And it's this thing of not condemning while at the same time speaking truth in love, isn't it? See, Jesus would speak truth to people without driving them away. Verse two, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am what? Nothing, zip, zero, nada, zilch, right? In other words, all the things I think I'm doing for Jesus, all the good things, all of these, you know, extra spiritual things, all of these amazing giftings that I'm able to access and operate in and encourage others. If I'm doing it for, for a reason that's motivated other than love, he says, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. And see, here's the thing. Spiritual maturity isn't as much about what you know as it is about how well you love. You catch that? Spiritual maturity is not as much about what you know as it is about how well you love. And all, all of the, the, the knowledge, I mean, you know, we encourage you around here to read your Bible, to get into the Word on a consistent basis and all these things, right? But all the knowledge in the world will do you no good if you take it and it's devoid of love in your heart. And all these spiritual goosebumps experiences, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to camp or I'm going to go to a retreat and, and just connect with God and feel these emotions and all of that stuff. And I'm going to have all these, you know, I'm a ton of faith. I'm just, you know, I have so much faith and I'm going to pray for people and all, all of this. And he says, guess what? If, if it's divorced from love in your heart, it's good for what? Nothing. It's good for nothing. This is the thing, Love that if you miss it, your whole effort to follow Jesus is for nothing. He goes on. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain what? Nothing. And so he's getting really dramatic in his illustrations here. You know, he's like tithing, nothing, 10%. No, not 20%. No, 100%. If I'm so spiritual, I say, you can have it all. Here's all of it. I'm going to give it all away. And then, not just that, I'm going to deliver my body to persecution and hardship. I'm going to suffer for Jesus, you know? And yet, it's, for, it's really in my heart. It's really about me. It's really about me looking important. It's not really about loving other people. I gain what? Nothing. Zero. No reward, sorry, you know. And then he goes on. You know, that's the martyr complex, isn't it, actually? That's that martyr complex of, you know, I'm just going to suffer, but, but there's that thing in us that it's easy to go into that kind of martyr complex, and yet that there's that thing in us that knows that it's really all about us. You can do the right thing for all the wrong reasons can't you? And then Paul goes on to describe the kind of love he's talking about. And as we know, 
um, the kind of love, it's a Greek word, agape. And it means this. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And you're going on in your head already, right? Because you've heard these so many times at a wedding. You're just like, you've got this memorized, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard this. Don't miss it. In fact, we're going to take a little time. We're going to move through these next three verses a little slowly and look at this because I think so often it's such a familiar thing that we just go right by it without ever letting the weight of it and the impact of it sink in. Love is patient. There's a Greek word, makrothumeo. It means long-suffering or deferring anger. It's, not a sh- it's the opposite of a short fuse with people, right? It slows down. It's gearing down. I'm going to move at your speed instead of mine. Have you ever been on a... Uh, walk with a toddler. My kids are all grown up, getting older now, but I remember when they were younger, I'd go on a walk, we'd go out by the monument with my son, and he'd just be going along, and like every five feet, you know, there was an anthill, and he'd get down, and then there's like a flower, and he'd get down, you know, and you just don't get where you're going, do you? You have to gear down. You have to change your speed and meet someone else where they're at. And this is the idea of meeting someone with patience, is gearing down and meeting them at their speed, not at your speed. Just the fact that, you know, you, you are on a mission, you have so much going on, gearing down, meeting people, and not having such a short fuse when somebody crosses you in some way. Love is patient. Love is kind. And this is more than just being nice. We have this idea of kind in our culture as just being a nice guy, you know, or somebody's so sweet, you know, they're so kind, they say nice things. But there's a lot deeper meaning than just that. Love is kind. The word really carries the idea of being full of service to others. Kind of similar to gentle. Being full of service to others. Kindness is when you're strong in an area, helping those who aren't. When someone needs something, you do it for them, right? Extending yourself. Lending another person your strength when you're strong in an area and they're not. When someone is kind to you, they they usually do something unusual, don't they? Something they didn't have to do. Something they didn't owe you. And that's what your Savior did for you, isn't it? This is the idea, is kindness, is is serving others. um, I have a great example from when I was a kid. I went on a hike, a backpack trip down the Grand Canyon with my mom when I think I was only seven years old at this time as I'm heading down and hiking. And there was a 12-year-old boy on this trip, and he was so kind to me. I, I, have, I don't remember like a ton of things from my childhood, but to this day, I remember how kind this kid was. I don't remember his name, but I remember his kindness towards me and what a big impact that made on me. If you're a young person in the room, man, you can have an incredible impact on someone just a few years younger than you simply by being kind to them. I think he helped me with my pack, and, you know, he was just there for me, and he, he included me, and he, he took me under his wing, and it made such a big difference in my life. And to this day, I'm impacted by this guy, and I remember that as I think about being kind to those who are maybe just a little bit, um, you know, younger than me or that need something from me, Right? That's what your Savior did for you. Does not envy. Does not envy. 
And this is a hard one for us in our culture because I think there's so much envy. And I think social media has just made it so much more prevalent in our hearts and so much easier to see our lives and compare our lives to everyone else's lives and compare our relationships or lack of thereof to everyone else's highlight real relationships and highlight real families and vacations and weekend trips and all that, right? And here's what not envying means. It means you can celebrate the success of others. And when somebody else succeeds, there isn't the first thing that comes up in your heart isn't this, mm, I, I wish I had that, right? You can truly celebrate it. Or when their kids, you know, that family and their kids just outdo your kids and everything, you can celebrate the success of their kids, not just feel bad about your own. It's that thing that doesn't feel happy inside when something bad happens to someone you don't like. You ever seen that? You know, somebody that hurt you or did something to you a few years back and you just have held on to it. And, and every time, you know, maybe a little bump in the road or a hardship comes up, there's that little bit of pleasure that comes up in your heart and you're like, ew, that's icky. Where did that come from? It comes from envy. You can celebrate others. It doesn't first go to jealousy. You know, as you're on social media and you see other friends having a great time with friends that aren't you. The first thing that rises up in your heart isn't like this envy thing, right? It actually can be happy for him. It says it does not boast. It is not proud. Boasting is a negative aspect of bragging about oneself. To, to, to you know, elevate your place or proud. Literally, the word means puffed up. Puffed up or seeing yourself as better than others. And most of us would say, I don't see myself as better than others. And yet, when we stop, you know, how, how do we respond in the restaurant when the waiter or waitress isn't performing up to what we think they should? Is there this thing that rises up, this thing that puffs up and goes, I'm better than that. I deserve more than that, better than that. See, and humility in your relationships with others is really seeing myself as I really am in relationship to God. And in relationships to others, we stand on an equal place. We are all fallen, broken sinners in need of grace. We all stand on an equal platform at the foot of the cross. And seeing, if you have this thing in your heart that rises up and feels a feeling of superiority towards those who maybe, you know, aren't as talented as you or as good at a subject in school as you or, you know, as popular as you or have as big of a boat as you or whatever, and there's that thing that rises up. It's a good sign that this pride thing hasn't quite been taken care of in your heart. And this isn't like a thing you get over immediately, is it? It's a thing you continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work on you for. But it's a characteristic of love. It's not proud. Verse 5, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And this dishonoring others in the, in the King James Version, it literally says, doth not behave itself unseemly. What that means, what does that mean? What's honoring to others? I don't take advantage of others. I don't gossip about others because that hurts them and that dishonors them. I don't take what I want physically in, in a dating relationship and risk 
the future hurt or, or shame or regret for the other person. I honor them. I honor them. Not self-seeking. It's not just all about me. I don't love just so I can get loved in return, right? It's not easily angered. It doesn't have a short fuse, again. I think of, of, of being able to, to put up with someone else's bad behavior and not just immediately explode into anger. That's a characteristic of love. And keeping no records of wrongs. A pastor friend of mine has a good rule for their relationship, and that is you can't bring anything up older than six months. You know, you're fighting, not, not three years ago, off limits. And see, this is this thing we do over and over, isn't it? I mean, especially if you're married, you know how easy this is to do. Keeping score, you know, the whole laundry list that's just sort of kept back here in the back of your mind. And as soon as a little conflict comes, you rattle off the last, you know, 10 years of, of things. And your mama said, and you're like your daddy, and, and you did that, and you, you, you know. And this is challenging to us, isn't it? And Paul knows that. Verse six, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. I think this is really neat because this is a lot of times when we talk about love in 1 Corinthians 13, and because this always gets read at, at weddings, everybody's just sort of, oh, love, you know, soft, and you see pastel colors in your mind, you know, and you hear canon in D, da, 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 you know. That's what you associate this with. He says, no, no, no. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You see, a lot of times we confuse love and tolerance in our culture. And so as you come through all this stuff, and you know, as we talk about jerks for Jesus, we've all seen that. But the opposite side of that is there are no standards. There are, there's no right or wrong. You know, whatever you, whatever you want to do, whatever you think about this is, you know, that's, that's your truth. And he says, no, love does not rejoice in evil. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices in truth. Tolerance is just, I will keep my mouth shut. And I think you've got to operate in this with a ton, a ton of wisdom, especially in our current climate in our nation. And a ton of wisdom, especially when you have the perfect zinger response on Facebook. Pause. Think. Is this driving people away from Jesus or drawing people to Jesus, right? But the difference between loving someone, you can love someone and disagree with them. You know that. You can love someone and not agree with their behavior or their lifestyle and want what's best for them genuinely and do it in a way that doesn't drive them away from Jesus but lets them know you really love them. And that's the key in this to approach people in our lives and our families and in our relationships in a way that they know we really love them. We're there with them for the long run, whether they ever come around to our point of view or not. And yet, this is what we believe about the truth of God's word. And you can do that without compromising. Love does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. Jesus he is always, you see in Jesus, he's 100% full of grace and truth. 
That's what we saw, the, the lady caught in adultery. It's grace and truth, not 50-50. Sometimes I'm graceful, sometimes I'm truthful. No, he's fully truthful with people at the same time. They, they know he actually is for them. He's for them. And that's the thing we need to, to, to aim for in every one of our interactions with people is that we approach it in such a way that even if we don't agree and even if we say some things they don't want to hear, they come away with it knowing, well, you know, I'm, he's for me. I believe that they really love me, right? That even if people think these Christians are crazy and weird and believe a bunch of crazy stuff and they, I, I don't get what they believe, but man, the way they love, that's awe-inspiring. Wouldn't it be great if that was the reputation of the church again, like it was back then? He wraps this little phrase up this way. It always protects. Love protects those around it. Protects your kids. It protects your wife. Protects those in your life. Always trusts. And I think this is really referring to the, the trust that God is working in the life of the other person. And trusting and not judging the motives behind the scene. This doesn't mean you always trust someone that has proven that they lie over and over, or someone that's proven that they are an abuser, or different things like that. No, no, no. It's not saying that. But there's an underlying part of this that says, if I understood where you're coming from, I would understand you. It always hopes. It always hopes that God will get a hold of those in our lives. Always hopes for the best for those in our lives, and it always perseveres. Doesn't just give up on people. Doesn't just walk away and give up on people. It perseveres, sticks with them. And here's the thing there's no doubt that plenty of other facets of love could be added to these verses. But these verses appear here because these were some of the issues that the Corinthians really struggled with and were most lacking in their church and in their relationships. And I'm trusting, as we went through this list, some of you know that there's an area there that you need to allow God to work on you in as well. And Paul recognized that loving like Jesus is the mark of a true follower of Jesus. And, and he wanted to drive home its importance when he penned these words that are now some of the most famous and inspiring words ever written in history. But the most, but the important thing for you and I is that we don't miss them here today because of how familiar they are, because we've heard them so many times. So really, I just want you to remember this this week and think about this, that the distinguishing mark of a Jesus follower is love. The distinguishing mark of a Jesus follower is love. And that spiritual maturity isn't as much about what you know or how much you know or what kind of spiritual experience you have as about how well you love those in your life. And so how, how are you doing with loving in this kind of way? Do you want your faith to be multiplied into something great, something that lasts, or do you want to end up with nothing? Because all those things that you're doing for Jesus, if it's, if it's divorced from love, it is Nothing, right? It is nothing. And here's the thing about this kind of love. This list is very similar to another list that Paul writes called the fruit of the Spirit. And the only way you love like this, you're not capable of loving like this just on your own. I'm sure you've experienced that, haven't you? Probably some of you on your way to church this morning 
or as you're trying to get your kids out the door. Oh, yeah, the patience. Mm, kind, mm, oh. Can we just move on, Pastor, you know? Here's the thing. This only comes as we walk by the Holy Spirit, as we invite the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us, as we, as we cooperate with the work that he's trying to do in our lives. Then we see what is known as the fruit of the Spirit. This isn't just a grit your teeth and get this done kind of thing, right? This is a God, I am not doing this very well. I need you. I need help. I need your Spirit to come and enable me to love like this. It will enable me to love my kids and my spouse the way that, that I know you're calling me to, or, or those coworkers, those around me that are so hard to love. Would you move in my life that way? What would it look like if we really got this as a church? I mean, if we really lived this, if the distinguishing mark, if the culture knew that, wow, Christians, I don't believe the same, but man, they just love. I think it would revolutionize our world again, just like it did in the first and second century. I think it would revolutionize our world. Now, this is all you need to think about this week, but I've got homework for you, okay? Because this is a two-week series, and next, seri- next week we're going to really dig into some practical tools, and one of those tools we're going to look at is, is called Love Languages. And some of you have read the book by Gary Smalley, The Five Love Languages. Um, this is based around that, and we are launching today a campaign through our Home Point Center. And so on your way out, I would love to have you pick up one of these packets. Please, everyone or every family um, or individual, pick up one of these. What you're going to find in here is a, a letter with an instruction on how to go and take a love languages assessment tool. What love languages are all about is helping you find the ways that your kids or your husband or wife or those around you are understanding yourself the ways that you really feel and experience love so that you can communicate love to those around you in a way that they really hear it, in a way they really receive it. And so there's a little assessment test you can do in here where you can go online or you can fill out one of these little tests here and figure out what is my love language. And please do that this week. And next week, we're going to have a lot of fun stuff. We're going to have a photo booth and some different things to give away to you guys as well. And we'll dig into this a little bit more in the message next week. But there's some things in here for meeting your family's needs. There's um, something in here for a date night for around, that's good guys, listen up, you know, date night around Valentine's Day. That's a good one. Five love languages, date night. Um, There's something in here for singles. There's a packet for singles, for parents and teens so that you can help understand what really, how your teens feel loved and how you can express that. And then um, for a parent and child as well. And so please take that on your way out and do your homework this week. Take some time, go through that, do the assessment, figure out what your love language is. And then next week, we'll talk about that a little more. Would you stand? And I'm just gonna close by praying for you. Father, thank you for my friends here. And Lord, thank you for preserving these incredibly inspiring words for thousands of years now, Lord. Would we not be so familiar with them that they slip off our radar Lord, that you placed primary significance and importance on them, would we do the same in our lives? Would we, would our lives be marked by our love for one another? Would that be true of our church, Lord? And we pray these things in your name, the name of Jesus. Amen.